When you hear the word Google, you first and foremost associate it with search. You have a disagreement with someone, let's Google it. You want to know where to vacation, Google it. You want to know what a company does, Google it. But if you've been watching Google over the years, you know that Google does much more than, well, Google. There's Gmail and Google Hangouts and Google Apps and Google Drive. The relationship between these offshoots became so obvious that Google just decided to brand them collectively as the G Suite. Somewhere along Google's path of phenomenal success, the company decided to start working on some super interesting and hard problems that are really unrelated to the company's initial mission of organizing the world's information. The founders of Google have become so invested in developing other businesses that the company is no longer called Google. In January of 2016, the company was renamed Alphabet, with Google becoming just one of their subsidiaries. Calico is Alphabet's biotech subsidiary that is focused on extending human life. Verily is Alphabet's life sciences subsidiary. One of their projects is to develop contact lenses for diabetics that are able to determine when a person's glucose levels are running high. And then there is Google X, now referred to simply as X, the secretive think tank within Alphabet, pioneering projects like the driverless car that will one day make the act of driving obsolete. On the website for X, the mission statement reads, we're a moonshot factory. Our mission is to invent and launch moonshot technologies that we hope could someday make the world a radically better place. Google can be very secretive about their work, and this is ground zero for where their secret projects are born. X's stealth projects have one of three outcomes. They are elevated to a division within Google and made public. They are spun out to become a separate standalone company, or they are killed. To date, the only company to ever come out of Google X and be spun out into a separate entity is Flux. I spoke with Jen Carlisle, a co-founder of Flux, who initially joined Google as a software engineer in 2010. The way that Google X works is they identify what they call world-scale problems and then put a group of smart people together and say, try to come up with a solution for this that can be tackled within a 10-year time horizon. So our big hairy problem was urban population growth. And the Google X leadership recognized that, you know, the pace at which we're building buildings and the, the you know, the way that we do it now, we're going to like, simply not be able to keep up with urban population growth. In 1803, just 3% of the world's population resided in urban areas. I have this romantic image of living in the 18th century in a glamorous European city. But as it turns out, if you lived in a city in the early 1800s, you were part of a minority. This was before the Industrial Revolution had caused massive migrations from the country to cities where factories were located. The result of these massive migrations? By 1900, 14% of the world's population was living in cities. In 1950, the percentage of the world's population that lived in cities was 30%. And then in 2008, for the first time in the history of the world, the percentage of people living in cities equaled the percentage of people who lived outside of cities. Here's where it gets interesting. As of 2016, there are 7.4 billion people on the planet. 2.2 billion people are expected to join us by the year 2050. And 90% of this growth is expected to take place in cities. 
It's really hard to make sense of what the building challenge looks like to house 2 billion people. Jen delivered a keynote address in 2015 at the Design Modeling Symposium in Copenhagen, where she suggested we visualize what so many people moving into cities might entail by considering the number of new buildings we need to house them. Here's my math on the new buildings we would need. If we assume that each apartment contains four people, and each new building has an average of 50 apartments, then we would need to build 495 million new apartment buildings over the next 33 years to house all of these people. This equates to the construction of 822 buildings per day, every day, for the next 33 years. No days off, no vacations. Venture capitalists, are you listening? Now that's what we call a well-sized market opportunity. You're listening to Predicting Our Future. I'm Andrew Weinrich. This podcast explores current industries that are ripe for massive disruption, as well as some of the most exciting opportunities for entrepreneurs to explore. This is the third episode in a series about my prediction that in the near future, a majority of our homes will be built in factories. In the last episode, we interviewed some of the most compelling companies building high-end modular single-family homes. In this episode, we'll examine how two pioneering companies are rethinking multifamily construction by engineering buildings to go up quicker and more efficiently than ever before. This podcast is sponsored by DigitalOcean, a cloud platform company that is simplifying infrastructure for software developers. Thousands of startups have selected DigitalOcean because of how easy it is to get up and running with their platform. As you scale, DigitalOcean will scale with you. If you're a startup, apply for DigitalOcean's Hatch program, where if selected, you'll have access to their cloud for 12 months, in addition to technical training and mentorship. You can also go to do.co forward slash predicting our future and ask the sales team for a free trial. Let's turn our attention back to Flux, the company that spun out of Google. In Jen's words, the mission of Flux is to use technology and data to make the process of designing and building buildings much more efficient. What does this mean? The team behind Flux spent 18 months deconstructing the process of constructing a building and identified the design phase as the place where the greatest inefficiencies were found. Without Flux, uh, a pretty common way that buildings are designed is, um, you know, much design is done in silos. So, you, you know, there a building you can think of as a very complex system that has you know, many different players and different stakeholders. And so there's always an architect and then there's a set of, you know, engineers, structural engineers, um, MEP engineers, people who are focused on, you know, things like the building facade, building cores. And usually each of these are different firms and they have their piece of the building that they are responsible for designing. Um, so they'll take, um, you know, that piece and they'll design it, um, kind of independent of all of the other systems. So it's not until pretty late in the process that the different systems actually get integrated, you know, either in a design model or in drawings. 
because it's so late um, and because they were all designed kind of in a vacuum, it's pretty common for there to be these like large um, clashes or you know, redesign has to happen. At a high level, here's how I understood what Jen was telling me. If you're developing a new property, you can start with a program that has the topology of the land from NASA, the permitting requirements from the local authorities, and every other piece of data that might impact your decision-making. Jen describes much more literally the workflow. You can imagine being an architect and you have the shell of the building and you want to share that with a structural engineer who's going to um, figure out what the the column grid should be. Um, So the architect can um, send their, their, their building model up to flux and then the structural engineer can pull it down, um, and whenever an ar- the architect makes a change, the, those changes are uh, immediately reflected in the data that the that the structural engineer has. And you, you can kind of think of Flux as like a central um, data hub, um, and each person who's involved in the design process um, is like a spoke in that wheel, and they can um, push their data up to Flux or they can consume someone else's data. Um, but the idea is that Flux becomes kind of the, the central source of truth um, and you always have access to the most up-to-date information um, so you don't have to just design in a vacuum anymore. Jen also said that the integrated software could eventually be used to improve coordination between the architect the builder, and the building material fabricators during the construction process. Integrated design could let the fabricator produce steel frames for the first floor of the building. And then if you could imagine real-time delivery and assembly, the first floor might be built before the second floor is fabricated. If there was a change in the design because of site conditions or client's preferences, the Flux platform would allow the architect to change the drawings that would then be instantly transmitted to the fabricator, where the fabricator could then provide updated cutting instructions to its machines, thereby altering the size of the framing for the second floor made at the plant. Jen and I didn't discuss how much money or time could be saved by using their platform. I'm pretty confident that Flux will become a big and important company, playing an integral role in making the entire building process more efficient. But I was a little surprised to learn that Google didn't have any plans to put their platform and their process to use in their own housing factory and get directly into the construction business. It's not really Google's style to simply facilitate others who are solving big problems. If you think about how they approach smartphones, Google worked pretty closely with HTC to develop the first Android phone. And even after it was delivered, Google kept building phones under its own brand name just to show what they were capable of. In other words, Google was involved with every aspect of production of a smartphone, from the software through the finished hardware product. Here is this incredibly important and pressing problem. Developing housing for an exploding population, and Google devotes resources to deconstructing the process of building housing from start to finish and then only solves the software component, which they subsequently spin off into a standalone company. Wait, did I get that right? From what I learned speaking with Jen, Flux isn't thinking about getting into the construction business anytime soon. But is Google? 
In June of 2015, Sergi Brin announced the creation of another subsidiary under Alphabet called Sidewalk Labs. In Sergi Brin's words, Sidewalk will focus on improving city life for everyone by developing and incubating urban technologies to address issues like cost of living, efficient transportation, and energy usage. The company is led by Dan Doktoroff, former CEO of Bloomberg LP, and then deputy mayor of economic development and rebuilding for the city of New York when Michael Bloomberg was mayor. Initially, it appeared that Sidewalk Labs was going to focus on using big data to facilitate smarter living and making broadband internet wirelessly accessible for city people. Sidewalk was one of the principal backers behind the free public Wi-Fi kiosks that started appearing throughout New York City in 2016. In Sidewalk's vision of the future, Public data could be made available for all kinds of applications, from drivers finding parking spots to travelers finding Airbnb rooms for the night. More recently, it was reported that Sidewalk was considering acquiring land and housing hundreds of thousands of people. Sidewalk has adopted something of Google's notoriously opaque culture and hasn't elaborated further as to whether they would get into the business of building buildings. Dan Doktoroff didn't return my emails to be interviewed for this podcast. I, for one, wouldn't be surprised to see Sidewalk or Google taking an interest in modular construction in the near future. It's certainly consistent with what we know about Google wanting to solve really big problems. But if it's not Google that is currently at the bleeding edge of factory construction for multifamily buildings, then who is? Let's for a minute put on our Google thinking caps. We can't think anymore about building hundreds of homes per year. We need to think about building thousands of homes. And if that works, we need to think about building tens of thousands of homes. We're not just talking ambitious, we're talking dramatically ambitious. I came across three companies that have operated in the last 10 years with this type of ambition. One in China and two in the United States. Brooklyn to be exact, and neither of the American companies has survived in their original forms. In prefabricated and modular construction, cheaper can mean you're paying less per square foot to build, and it can also mean you're paying the same per square foot to build, but the building is going up in a shorter period of time. Building faster is cheaper. Developers can borrow huge sums of money to build a project. They pay back that money by refinancing what they borrow, which they can only do after construction is complete. Zhang Yu is the founder and chairman of the Chinese company Broad Group, which operates the Broad Sustainable Building Company, BSB for short. If there's one company that understands the power of the time-lapse video, it's BSB. Type into YouTube, 15-story hotel built in one week, or 30-story hotel built in 15 days, or 57-story building built in 19 days, and you will find a number of videos with at least a million views each that demonstrate BSB's impressive rapid construction of concrete skyscrapers. When 
you watch the video about the 57-story building, you can't help but to be skeptical that a skyscraper can be built in less than a month. And as it turned out, after speaking with the founder and chairman of BSB, I was right. The building wasn't really built in 19 days. And that's because 90% of the building was constructed in a factory over a period of months. What the time-lapse video showed was the 19-day period where BSB assembled the building parts that had already been prefabricated in a factory. After learning this, I found the video all the more impressive. Prior to my interview with Chairman Yu, his secretary sent over promotional materials for me to read. When we spoke, Chairman Yu first quizzed me on his company's primary mission. I think I scored a B. I'd love it if he could begin by talking about, from design, how a given project is conceived of, and then what components are built in the factory before you arrive at a site. Before our chairman answer your question, he would like to ask you one question. Sure. He would like to know what's your understanding of the BSB's value to the whole society, the core value. I came prepared. I had read a profile on you in Wired before the interview where I learned that prospective BSB employees needed to be able to run seven and a half miles over the course of two days. The Wired article said that employees were instructed to refer to you as my chairman, although the translator referred to him throughout my interview as simply chairman. What we have been focused on with the core value of all of these companies breaks down, I think, into three areas. One is that if you can build inside of a factory rapidly, you are less, dis less disruptive to a city build because there's less time on site. If you can build into a factory, and I think this is where the chairman's going, presumably you can achieve greater energy efficiencies. And I think that's, that's the B team's principal focus is can they achieve greater energy efficiencies resulting in less of a carbon footprint with the finished product? And the third mission is can you rapidly build buildings to accommodate for the growing urbanization of your pop population? Uh, Chairman, agrees with you for the uh, first two values, but um, I'm for the third. I might have borrowed the third value from what Jen described as Google's mission when they were launching Flux. Regardless, I wanted to talk about cost savings that would accelerate a movement towards factory-built construction. But you clearly felt his greatest contributions in this field were his green building methodologies and energy-efficient buildings. And perhaps he's right. There is immense governmental pressure all over the world to build in an environmentally conscious way. If increasing buildings' energy efficiency is easier to do inside of a factory than on-site, then this could be a tipping point for more construction to move indoors. Yu says up to 40% of construction materials brought to a building site are wasted when the pieces are cut and assembled on site. The garbage is all waste, or waste construction materials due to poor, quality, poor on-site control. It's a very big harm to the world. 
And normally, 20% of the construction waste is produced. In China, that figure can reach above 40%. You also talked to me about air quality, a serious concern in urban China. Before constructing buildings, he was producing air filtration systems, which he then designed and implemented in BSB's factory-built buildings. Eventually, I did get you to talk about the cost of BSB's buildings compared to high-rises built without the benefit of so many prefabricated components. The efficiency of labor work at factory is five to six times higher than that than on-site labors, and uh, the material waste is almost zero. 人工的效率提高，材料的浪费减少，所以呢，它的成本呢比传统的要低一倍多。So the cost of BSB is two times um, lower than traditional buildings. It's fifty percent of traditional buildings. Yeah, fifty percent cost effective. Skeptics abound that Chinese construction methodologies are worthy of replication outside of China. Goldman Sachs says that 25 to 30% of cement used in Chinese buildings is of a grade so low that it wouldn't be used in other countries. And even China's government has announced the eventual phasing out of this low-quality cement. According to China's Ministry of Housing and Urban Rural Development, almost half of China's housing supply is set to be demolished in the next 20 years. The former Vice Minister of China's Housing and Urban Rural Development Ministry estimates that new buildings currently going up will only last 25 to 30 years before being taken down. Professor Austin Williams, an architect and professor currently living in China, thought that the construction speed of Chinese developers could largely be attributed to inexpensive and abundant labor. They have lots of uh, farmers who they give them hard hats and they put them on a building site and they make them work there for 24 hours a day seven days a week until the job's done. Uh, so basically, speed of construction is because they have 24-hour building sites. Uh, and they have a very simple construction design procedure, which is concrete. So it's a, you know, it's a, a very simple maxim. Um, and I think that could happen anywhere if you, if you accepted those terms of the discussion. If you achieve an abundant labor. Yeah, yeah. I think we have to think back not too far in America or in the UK, Europe, uh, where construction standards were also terrible. I mean, in the UK, the, uh, we didn't have insulation in the walls or floors until the middle of the 1960s, till about 1970. Uh, so China is also building buildings. The building I'm in now, which is a brand new university, still doesn't have insulation in the walls. Um, but now they're deciding that the speed of construction, which was speedy because of necessity, a little bit like the post-war construction splurge that happened in America and UK, uh, that's done. So they've got enough buildings. Now they can start maybe concentrating on the quality. I have no way of assessing the quality of BSB's buildings or to verify Chairman Yu's claims. But much of what he told me in regards to his cost savings rang true as it seemed in line with what I had been hearing from developers in the United States. In the last two episodes, I interviewed a number of American single-family home builders that were doing the majority of their construction inside of factories, and many of them also claimed the same 50% cost savings. 
If skyscrapers can be assembled at 50% the cost of traditional buildings by fabricating most of the components in a factory, this might suggest that the next generation of Chinese factories won't just be for garments or electronics, but for manufacturing buildings that will go up faster than anything we've seen to date. When I asked Chairman Yu about BSB's plans for expansion beyond China, he told me that he was currently seeking a partner in the United States to build in New York City. As for Google, well, I wouldn't discount Google. If there's a place to change the world and impact millions or potentially billions of people's lives, it's in urban housing. And it's hard for me to believe that a company with resources like Google would let that kind of massive opportunity slip by and be tackled by someone else. Tune in to the next episode of Predicting Our Future to hear the stories behind the two super ambitious modular building projects that aim to shape the way we view factory-built apartments in the United States. If you'd like to learn more about the companies featured in this podcast, as well as a few additional companies that I interviewed, go to predictingourfuture.com to access the full list of participants and all the interviews in their entirety. This is Predicting Our Future.